The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello again, a very warm welcome back to the podcast. This is actually our second episode in two days as I uploaded our Halloween special yesterday. So I very much hope you enjoyed both that bonus instalment and Halloween itself. Today, I'm going to be delving into a topic that I've wanted to talk about for a good while. I thought it was perfect timing as it's been a couple of months since I talked about anything along the unexplained phenomenon slash medical mystery lines. And the story of how I got to this subject is directly related to the podcast itself. A few months ago, I was sat in the pub with my very good friend Luke, and we were having a chat about the podcast. Now, Luke has been a key part of the Things Are About To Get Weird crew from day one. Well, technically, way before day one. He's actually the person who took the photo of me that features on our logo. And he's also one of the people I chatted to about this idea of doing a Strange But True Stories podcast literally years before I actually launched it. Anyway, as we were chatting, I suddenly had a light bulb moment and realised I absolutely had to cover something that Luke has first-hand experience with, and that is sleep paralysis. He very kindly agreed to answer some questions I had about the condition, and I'll be sharing his answers with you throughout the episode. I am sure you will be just as fascinated and captivated by this topic as I am. A quick disclaimer to say that I am not a medical professional and that nothing I say in this episode is intended to be medical advice. If you are concerned about any sleep issues you're having, then please do speak to your doctor. Also, there are some pretty scary details in this episode, so please do be prepared. Okay, all that said, let's get into it. If you've never heard of sleep paralysis before, or you're not quite sure exactly what it is, here's how the NHS describes the condition. They say that sleep paralysis happens when you can't move your muscles or speak as you're waking up or falling asleep. Essentially, you are in sleep mode, but your brain is active. I asked Luke how he would explain it to someone who has no experience of it, and he began by saying, From my own understanding, your brain is very active at night whilst you sleep, and to prevent you from acting out your movements during your dreams, your brain releases a chemical that paralyzes your body. This is in line with what neuroscientist Balan Jalal from Harvard University told the BBC back in April of this year. He then added that sometimes during the final stage of sleep, known as REM or rapid eye movement sleep, the sensory part of your brain comes out of REM too early, whilst the lower part is still in it and sending out the signals to your muscles to stay paralysed. Scientists don't know quite why this happens, but we'll get more into that later. This is what Luke describes as the scary type of sleep paralysis. He says it's kind of the opposite of sleepwalking, because with that condition, the body isn't paralysed correctly, but the brain is unconscious. 
To me, it sounds scary enough on its own. I can only imagine that the sensation of feeling awake but being unable to move is awful. But this is just the tip of the iceberg for many who suffer with sleep paralysis. In fact, I remember that when Luke first told me about the experiences he'd had whilst in this state, I could not believe what I was hearing. I asked Luke to recall the very first episode of sleep paralysis he encountered, which happened to him around the age of 12. He said, I remember it extremely vividly because of how terrifying it was. As a typical young lad who loved doing all-nighters, I had stayed up really late to play games, kind of forcing myself not to fall asleep. I was lying down on my back, and one moment I was completely fine, the next I was just totally unable to move or breathe. My vision slowly grew darker around the edges of my sight, and my heart rate sped sky high. All I remember thinking was, I am going to die. My family were all in the house asleep, and I had no way to shout to get help or attention. I was using every fighting urge to move even just one finger, but I couldn't. Then, the moment when it all felt like it was about to end, I snapped out of it and sat up. I was filled with adrenaline and fear afterwards. I can't remember how I calmed down, but it was probably at this moment when I searched online for an explanation and found all about what sleep paralysis is. That must have been horrendous. I can't imagine going through something like this at any time, let alone as a kid. But it gets even wilder. Because something that's common for sleep paralysis sufferers to experience during these incidents are terrifying hallucinations that, according to the NHS, can last up to several minutes at a time, though they can also be over in seconds. Here's how Luke described the shift he saw with the kinds of encounters he's had. Over the years, my experience with sleep paralysis has changed. I've gradually gotten so used to it that now if I have an episode, I tend to just brush it off and it barely affects me. But for the bulk of my attacks throughout my teenage years and early 20s, they all had the same general symptoms. On top of the general feeling of impending doom, there have been many occasions that have involved hallucinations, both visual and auditory. The demon that most people with sleep paralysis attest to seeing is something I have seen many times in many different forms. I found that it took the form of anything prominent in my life at the time. So early on, I would see the Dementors from Harry Potter floating above me, then I started to see the xenomorph from Alien next to me. Luke then got into more detail about these hallucinations and do be warned that this is really quite chilling. He said, Quite a lot of the time though, it's something altogether indescribable. A kind of phantom that doesn't really have a shape, more like just a presence. This entity, whatever form, usually starts at the opposite end of the room you're in and slowly makes its way closer to you until it is basically mere millimetres away from your face. The feeling of doom and the struggle to breathe slash move only grows more intense the closer they get. It almost feels like they are pressing hard onto your chest or holding every atom in your whole body down. The last few things I have hallucinated have been my bed covers being ripped off me, 
my door slamming, and quite commonly I see a big spider on the wall. I hate spiders and there's nothing worse than seeing a big one and watching it crawl around while I can't move, only for it to have disappeared by the time I snap awake. It really makes me question if I saw it or not and I have tried finding one. Now, experiences similar to Luke's have been extensively reported, with a recent BBC article highlighting everything from people vividly hallucinating aliens, intruders and deceased relatives, to seeing clones of themselves standing next to their bed. But what's not as clear is what causes this condition in the first place. Back in 2011, a huge study into sleep paralysis was conducted by clinical psychologist Brian Sharpless. What he found was that it was more common than anyone realised, with almost 8% of adults saying that they had experienced it at some point. Although medical professionals have not been able to directly establish a reason for sleep paralysis occurring, they have outlined a few factors which are thought to have some level of association with it. In a 2023 paper published by the National Centre for Bioinformation Technology in the US, its writers Maheen Farouk and Fatima Anjum cite anxiety disorders, poor sleep quality, consumption of alcohol, exposure to traumatic events, and a family history of sleep paralysis as possible links. The NHS also notes that the long-term condition narcolepsy is thought to be another potential link in some extreme cases. For Luke, the poor sleep quality angle is the one from the list that he relates to, and says that for him it's more likely to occur if he stays awake too late when he's feeling really tired, or forces himself not to fall asleep. But there's another major factor for him that I've seen multiple other people reference throughout my research, and that is falling asleep lying on his back. He says that he's pretty much guaranteed to have sleep paralysis if he does sleep this way, so he knows that it's not an option for him anymore. Another research paper published by J.A. Shane in 2002 confirmed that from the studies they analysed, sleeping in the supine position, i.e. on your back with your face pointed upwards, meant sleep paralysis was more likely to occur. In fact, it made it more likely than in all of the other sleep positions combined, which is fascinating. It is important to say at this point that for the majority of people who do experience sleep paralysis, it's what the NHS describes as scary but harmless, and they also stress that most people will only get it once or twice in their lives. However, their advice does encourage people to see their GP if sleep paralysis leaves them very anxious or scared to go to sleep, and if they feel tired all the time due to lack of sleep. The suggestion seems to be that your doctor could look at treating an underlying condition that might be triggering the condition, like insomnia or PTSD, or get a referral to a sleep specialist if this isn't applicable. But it's clear that these episodes can be really distressing for people. I was intrigued to find out from Luke's perspective how it leaves him feeling, and whether these feelings are consistent. Here's what he told me. During sleep paralysis, I usually feel just pure fear. The level of fear is dependent on how long it lasts, but I tend to start off confused and scared, and it ends just before I feel like I'm about to black out. 
Some intense attacks have left me unable to sleep, whilst others I can just instantly fall back to sleep. This is probably dependent on how tired I actually am. I usually remember everything with great detail afterwards, but it has caused me a few times to feel like I've had deja vu or something. I'll be at work and suddenly remember that I had sleep paralysis the night before. I can actually remember very specific instances of sleep paralysis in my life. Some have been brief moments during a quick nap during the day with no visions, while most have been full panic attacks at 3am with nightmare monsters. And here, with the mention of these monsters again, I wanted to take a little turn into a wider debate that's often discussed in relation to sleep paralysis, specifically the hallucinations. Over the years, entire research papers have been written about the possibility that everything from historical bouts of witchcraft panic to accounts of alien abductions could be logically explained by sleep paralysis. Essentially, the suggestions have been that when people throughout history have complained of witches or extraterrestrial beings visiting them at night, physically oppressing them and even temporarily stopping them from moving or speaking, what they may have actually experienced instead was sleep paralysis. The same theory is also sometimes applied to ghosts too, and you know what? Even though I am a believer in ghosts and have had encounters with them myself, I do understand the appeal of this explanation. I am sure that there must have been cases where people who have had a sleep paralysis episode have thought that they were genuinely being visited by a ghost or other kind of supernatural being, probably in the days before the condition was understood from a medical standpoint. Does this mean I no longer believe in ghosts? Of course not, I think both things can be true. But it's fascinating when you look at things like certain works of art from centuries past and see depictions of monsters floating above a person lying in bed or sitting on their chest. For example, the painting The Nightmare by Henry Fuseli from 1781. I think there's a good chance that this had strong ties to sleep paralysis. Perhaps it was even directly influenced by something the artist went through one night. In more modern times, artists have explicitly created works based on the sleep condition, as we have so much more information available to us about exactly what it is, or at least what it could be. But in times past, I think it's realistic to assume that some of those who saw these hallucinations could have easily mistaken them for reality, which could have played into wider fears, especially when it came to things like witches. So what could possibly be the reason that sleep paralysis can range from just that feeling of being conscious but unable to move, to involving these dark figures and terrifying monsters? I found a 2015 article from The Guardian which included another interview with neuroscientist Balan Jalal, who offered up this compelling theory, explaining that after waking up in this state, quote, Naturally, you panic and try to move, and so your motor cortex in the brain starts firing and sending all these signals to your limbs, but nothing's coming back because you're trapped in this temporary state, and so your brain has no perceptive feedback to create a sense of what your body looks like. 
This leads to a distortion of your sense of self. And so you might have an out-of-body experience or you might see various shapes appear which are actually disfigured versions of you. Adding original features, scenarios or stories to try and make sense of what you're experiencing is a very human thing to do. And this is why people see ghosts, demons, aliens or even figments from their past appearing to attack them. Again, this is such an engaging explanation and makes sense from a scientific standpoint. However, there are some who believe that sleep paralysis is more of a spiritual condition than a medical one. This seems to be for one of two reasons, either because the person who has gone through it is religious and has looked to their religion's books and teachings to try and explain it, or because there's someone who looks at the world in terms of frequencies and vibrations. In a Nylon article from 2016, an artist named Lauren Flax discussed how she believes sleep paralysis is all related to spirituality and existing in a higher level of frequency, and that it's a key factor in achieving a true out-of-body experience. In terms of religion as well, it does make sense to me that some people would turn to their wider belief systems to try and explain the condition, because of how unusual it is, and because it is still considered to be somewhat of a not fully explained phenomenon medically. So in a way, I see both sides, but personally, I find myself leaning more towards the scientific than the spiritual in this instance. Belangelal developed a theory, particularly around this religious or spiritual angle which I thought was really interesting. Essentially, he suggested that if you have a fear of something, say witches in the 1600s or demons associated with your belief system, the fear centres in your brain become hyper alert. This anxiety could cause your sleep to become more fractured, increasing the chances of sleep paralysis. And what is your brain already focused on? The thing you're scared of. This principle then also made me think back to what Luke said about spiders. He already hates them and was maybe subconsciously anxious about one being in the room and then that's what he sees during sleep paralysis. Obviously, as I say, I'm not a doctor or a psychologist but I just wonder if there could be a potential link there. Then, there was something else that came out of my chat with Luke that really struck me. Not only is it incredibly interesting, but it's also something that I stumbled across when reading more and more about sleep paralysis. This is bizarre. So there is another condition called exploding head syndrome, which I know sounds made up, but it is very real. Don't worry, the name should not be taken too literally. No one's head is physically exploding, but it might feel like it is. EHS is a phenomenon that can occur when a person is falling asleep and it's thought that around 10-15% to 15 of people have experienced it at some point. Remember Brian Sharpless, the professor from earlier? He did some research into the syndrome, and found a striking link between EHS and the main topic of this episode. In that, of the people he studied, 37% of those with exploding head syndrome also experienced sleep paralysis and Luke could very well be one of them. Here's what he told me about his ordeals with both of the conditions. 
I have also sometimes had something happen which I believe to be exploding head syndrome. EHS is basically having a really loud noise in your head. A common thing I hear is someone shouting my name really loud just before I wake up. This has sometimes been scarier than the visual hallucinations because I have been home alone and have been convinced I had heard someone in my family shout from downstairs. One of the worst things I've had happen to me is a series of EHS in one session combined with sleep paralysis. It's happened a few times, but basically it felt like the equivalent of an electric bomb exploding and shocking my entire head slash body repeatedly. The sharpness of the noise is really deafening, and it's usually paired with a blinding bright white flash and a weird feeling of being electrocuted all over. It's a complete sensory overload that feels like torture, especially when you're just tired and want a peaceful sleep. Oh my god, I totally get why this would be scarier than the visual hallucinations alone. I think torture is the only word that feels fitting to describe this. And I just hate to think that my friend has had to deal with this, it's horrible. So what on earth causes EHS? In an interview with Time magazine, Brian Sharpless explained that to understand it, start by thinking of the brain as being like a computer. He said, you go through a series of steps when you're shutting down your computer and your brain does the same thing. As you go to sleep, your auditory and visual neurons are normally inhibited. What we think happens during EHS is that instead of shutting down, these neurons fire all at once. When they do, they create a perception of sound, which is why sufferers hear the loud noises. He added that although reports of the condition in medical literature date back to around 1870, like with sleep paralysis, there's been very little research done into it. In fact, there's been far less done into EHS. For this reason, we don't fully know how common it is or exactly who is more likely to suffer from it. And Sharpless even states in the interview that many doctors will never have even heard of it. To me, this is just as intriguing as sleep paralysis, and I find that statistic about the percentage of people who suffer with both conditions really compelling. As much as I'll be keeping an eye out for further studies done around sleep paralysis, I'll also be looking out for new research into EHS too. One final thing from Luke's perspective that really got me was around the idea of someone else being able to jolt you out of a sleep paralysis episode. He explained that one of the hardest things to deal with is sleeping near someone and having an attack. You feel so close to being able to get help, but you can't do anything and they are oblivious. It's never happened, but I feel like even just someone slightly touching me whilst I was having an attack would snap me out of it. When I heard this, it really got me thinking about just how strange that must feel. Knowing that someone nearby is right there not having a clue what's happening to you whilst you're in this frozen state. I can totally appreciate why that's one of the trickiest parts of the condition to deal with. There's just nothing you can do to alert someone else about what's happening to you. That's the very nature of this whole thing, and that's really tough. He also spoke to me about lucid dreaming and the link with sleep paralysis there. But I kind of feel like that could be a whole separate episode in itself. There is so much to unpack with it. 
So if I do look into it in the future, I'll be sure to include Luke's experiences with it. One of the questions I was left with after doing all of my research was this. What can a person do to reduce the chances of them having a sleep paralysis attack? The NHS website recommends a few things, like regularly trying to get seven to nine hours of sleep per day, going to bed at roughly the same time each night and getting up again at the same time each morning, and getting regular exercise too. Although they do add a caveat to this by saying to avoid exercise in the four hours before going to bed. Interesting. They also recommend not eating a big meal, smoking or drinking alcohol or caffeine shortly before going to bed. And they agree with something we spoke about earlier in the episode too, as the advice states, do not sleep on your back, as this can make sleep paralysis more likely to happen. Again, this is just information I'm pulling from the National Health Service, and I'm going to link the page on their website about sleep paralysis in the show notes, so do check that out for yourself for the latest advice, as pages on their site can often get updated. This is just what it said at the time of me recording this in October of 2023, and as I said at the start, if you're concerned about any sleep issues you're having, be sure to speak to your doctor. As a final thought from me, as I've learned more and more about sleep paralysis, I kind of started to wonder to myself, now that I know what it is and understand some of the possible scientific explanations behind it, would I ever want to experience it myself just the once? And even though for a split second I considered it, I would have to say absolutely not, no thank you. I still remember the first time Luke told me about it all, it was probably around six years ago. We were on a set working, he's a videographer and I'm a presenter, and I was genuinely speechless. I'd never heard of it before, and I've discovered that the idea of it frightens me just as much now as it did then. Obviously, I can't control whether it does happen to me at some point in the future or not, and I would hope that if it did, I could recognise what it was and not freak out as much. But I'm really hoping it doesn't, and I really hope it reduces for Luke too. I would love to see more research being done into the condition. There have been more studies in recent years than there have been in previous decades, but it would be incredible to get some more definitive answers about it all and hopefully some further solutions for managing it too. All I know is that I'm never going to take a restful night's sleep for granted again. Oh my god, that was a wild ride. Of course, I want to say the biggest thank you in the world to Luke for sharing his stories with us. I could not have put this episode together without him. As I mentioned, he is a videographer and an amazing one at that. If you're based in or around Cornwall and have any videography needs, he runs Lush Videography, which I will link in the show notes. Definitely check out his work, he is super talented. I really hope you've all enjoyed this episode and if you've had any sleep paralysis experiences you would like to share, I'll be letting you know about all the ways you can get in touch shortly, right after our outro feature. Here's Weird Media. Today's Weird Media recommendation is perfect for anyone who is already missing spooky season because as I always say, 
Ghost stories are for life, not just for Halloween. This shout out is for the Haunted UK podcast, which I found myself listening to throughout October. If you love to hear stories about not only ghosts and poltergeists and bizarre paranormal encounters, but also things like UFOs, unexplained myths and legends, and even the odd unsolved disappearance, Haunted UK is a brilliant podcast to get your teeth into. There are tons of listener stories included, which is obviously fascinating when it comes to things like paranormal encounters, because the range of different experiences you get to hear about from the podcast is pretty mind-boggling. The host, Steve, guides listeners through each tale, and I always think they have that feel of spooky stories being told around a campfire. There are main full-length episodes, as well as a series called Short Haunts too, and the production quality of everything is incredible. I think my favourite episodes are the ones dedicated to haunted houses. For some reason, they've fascinated me since I can remember, probably because I lived in one myself for a couple of years when I was a kid. The Woodchester Mansion episode, episode 39, is one I found particularly intriguing. Without giving too much away, it's about the hauntings at a property which has never truly been lived in. And when you listen to it, you'll see why I wouldn't want to live there either. The Haunted UK podcast is available on all the major platforms. I personally listen on Spotify, but I will pop the link tree for it in the show notes. If you decide to give it a whirl, or if you're already a fan of the show, I would love to know what you make of the stories featured there too. I'll be as speedy as I can with our source shoutouts as there are quite a few. First and foremost, of course, was Luke, but in addition, the NHS website page about sleep paralysis, which I will leave linked, that BBC Future article from April 2023 that was by another Luke, the writer Luke Mintz. There was The Guardian piece by David Cox from October 2015, the Nylon article that was by Danny Deal from June of 2016, and the Time article about exploding head syndrome by Kate Samuelson from July 2017. We then had a few scientific papers, the one by Brian Sharpless and Jacques P. Barber, published in Sleep Medicine Reviews in October 2011. The one by Maheen Farouk and Fatima Anjum, last updated in April of 2023. The 2002 paper by J.A. Shane. And finally, a research article by Owen Davies from the peer-reviewed journal Folklore from August 2003. As I say, there are lots of ways you can get in touch. Over on Instagram, our handle is at thingsgetweirdpodcast and there's lots happening over there at the moment. On Facebook, there's both the private discussion group and the main podcast page too. Just search Things Are About To Get Weird on Facebook and they should both pop up. Our Twitter or X can be found at About To Get Weird and our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, as always, our Patreon and merch pages are linked in the show notes. Thank you so, so much for being here today. There's been a lot of activity around the podcast the past week or so, with Weird Fix launching and our Halloween special yesterday, so I really hope you're enjoying all of the episodes. If you are, a quick rating on Spotify or review on Apple Podcasts is always hugely appreciated. It really helps to support the show. 
So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. <laughs>